0: Let's pray together. Lord, you are holy. You are good. You are gracious. You are just. You are righteous. You are true. You are king. You are God. We ask that you would come near to us, that you would give us good news this morning, that we might be healed from our poverty. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Nathan, I'm not religious, but I love God. I heard this on the phone this week talking to an old friend I hadn't talked to in quite some time. It's kind of popular these days to say things like this. Um, I'm not religious, but I love Jesus. Jesus. Or, I'm not religi- religious, but I'm, I'm very spiritual. Uh, and even this, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. We like the way these things sound. Um, I think these, these phrases make us sound reasonable, not like fanatics. They make us sound open-minded, not like rigid, stuffy evangelicals. The thing is, the biblical authors have no problem with religion. The God of the Bible has no problem with human beings being religious. In fact, what I think the Bible suggests is that we are all religious. And you can't avoid it. Not just the Bible, but I think experience tells us this too. Let me see if I can prove this to you. The Nashville Predators. All right. Last week, last Saturday, some friends took us to a Preds game. I'm already learning the lingo. When we approached Bridgestone Arena, uh, we were all of a sudden drowning, just drowning in a sea of yellow jerseys. Have You guys experienced this? Uh, to, me, to me, they looked like priestly garments for the initiated. If you don't understand what that means, you will in a second. I was amazed. I, 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 see, I'm not a hockey guy at all. Uh, My first time to a game, in fact, ever. And I was like, man, in Nashville? Uh, We got some folks from Nashville up here. In Nashville? Are you kidding me? I I was shocked. This many people love hockey this much in Nashville. Uh, There's this whole subculture that that has this set of beliefs and practices that I had never experienced. People who were making great sacrifices... Of course you have to sacrifice your time uh, to, to go on your ritualistic pilgrimage to the cathedral or the arena you have to bleed your bank account especially if you get box seats you put on the religious garments we call them jerseys there's an order of worship beginning with the opening lineup and the national anthem the worship is antiphonal Meaning, there is there is a give and take, responsive responsiveness like our call to worship. You chant, you sing, you cuss in unison at the refs and on the other team. You high five your neighbor who is a stranger and now your best friend, and it's just awesome. We love it. It's a worship experience. Now, if you're really holy and you really sacrifice. You get VIP seats, and there is a feast, a buffet, and an open bar. You, you share a feast and a common cup together in community with people who have a like-minded mission, the Stanley Cup. And that's what it's all about, right? And, and, and the predators, the predators want your, they want our allegiance as we fight for the Stanley Cup, being religious involves giving your allegiance to someone or something. Even if that thing is yourself or your comfort or your security, being religious also involves you having a set of beliefs and practices for living in the world. And what you believe about the world probably shapes how you live and, and how you live shapes your beliefs. And, and so whether or not you, uh, you practice a formal religion... We are all religious, and what the Bible is concerned with is this. Do you have a false religion, or do you have a true religion? That's the distinction I think Isaiah makes here in chapter 58 uh, that, that Jennifer read to us. If you don't know anything about the book of Isaiah, it was written by the prophet Isaiah and portions possibly compiled by some of his disciples. Uh, there is this debate as to whether it was all written at the same time. Some, some think it was some parts of it were written after the exile. I, I, in, in my studies, I've come to believe that uh, it's all written at the same time prior to around 700 to 800 B.C. And it was written at a time when the nation of Israel was divided and wickedness and selfishness were just pervasive in the promised land. Uh, Jennifer Ford and Will Dyer uh, have done a spectacular job walking our youth in Sunday school through the book of Isaiah. And one thing that, that Jennifer has pointed out to us, she has shown the students that much of Isaiah's prophecy has a courtroom feel to it. You see, prophets don't just foretell future events, right? Um, It's always accompanied by warning of God's coming judgment for sin, but also followed with the promise of rescue from judgment and then future hope. And, And sometimes it's including prophecy about the redemption of the whole world, the entire cosmos, and here in Isaiah, God's people are on trial and God is the judge. God's people are indicted, indicted for these crimes. God says in the very first chapter of Isaiah, the very, chapter one starts out pretty rough. He says this, when you come to appear before me, when you come to worship, when you come to appear before me, you are trampling my courts, God says. When you spread your hands in worship, he says, I will hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why won't God listen? Your hands are full of blood, he says. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Remove remove the evil deeds. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That's chapter 1. Now fast forward 58 chapters to our text this morning and we hear the exact same theme in verses 1 to 5. And only this time it's in the context of the religious exercise of fasting. God says this. Declare to my people their transgression. Yet they seek me daily. And and I think he's being sarcastic here. I, I think. They delight to draw near to God. They ask of of me righteous judgments and, and delight to know my ways. But they don't act righteously to others. And they have forsaken my judgment or my law. In other words, God is saying that his people, his people have become consumers. They are a nation that does not act righteously. But they expect favor from me? God says, God says that the people keep asking him, why have we fasted? And you don't see it. God, why have we fasted? And you don't see, we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Where are you God? And God says in response in the courtroom, you want to know why you want to know why I can't see your fasting. You were, you're treating one another now like your forefathers retreated in Egypt when they were in slavery like four, just 400 years ago. You seek your own pleasure, verse 3 says. When you fast, you fight and quarrel, you oppress your workers on the day of rest. You accept this to be acceptable to me? Sure, you're, you're doing these religious exercises, but all I can see is this other stuff. You call this fasting? The, the the church, the church across the world, is right now in a season of Lent. If you know anything about Lent, it started Wednesday, March sixth this year on what we call Ash Wednesday, and during Lent, people often fast, which looks like giving up something like food or chocolate or or alcohol or TV or screen time on our devices. The idea behind fasting and, and, and giving up food, for example, is to deny ourselves something or, or to give up something in order to fan the flames of our faith. So, so for example, when we, if we're fasting from food and we go to reach for that, that moment we go to reach for the food, something that we are completely dependent upon, when we go to reach for the food, we see, we, we, our minds and our hearts are supposed to, be, to go to God and, and and remember him and, and how faithful he is to us and how dependent we are upon him for all things. I think I'm going to pull in Eric Parker. When Eric Parker preached, somebody, this happened. So pull out your keys. We're going to stop. Or, or don't pull them out, but we'll, we'll just do it all together. And, uh, uh, sorry. Yeah. Just do it. Somebody's. Somebody's bound to hit unlock. (laughs) Well done. The Lord heard our cries for help. All right. So the idea of fasting is that we would that our the the the, the our our faith would be flamed up uh, by this fasting, and we would draw us near. It would draw us near to God. So let's get back to Isaiah. On the one hand, Israel was doing this religious exercise of fasting, and on the other hand, they were acting like Pharaoh. They were doing this religious exercise of fasting and yet acting like Pharaoh. They were doing an exercise that pointed to the denying of oneself, but they were living life like selfish consumers. And God hates, God hates this level of hypocrisy. This is false religion. The late Christopher Hitchens uh, if you know who Christopher Hitchens is, he's, uh, he was a not- notable atheist, a writer, uh, pretty, a brilliant mind. Uh, in his book, God is Not Great, fun title, he actually does a good job of pointing out false religion. And he says over and over in his book that religion poisons everything. That's the subtitle. God is not great. Religion poisons everything. And one of his main arguments is that all holy books delude people into thinking they are better than everyone else. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. He, he, He says that for institutionally religious people, it doesn't take us long before we move from bragging about our new status to setting up standards that others cannot meet. Then we move to looking down our noses at those who don't measure up This snobbery moves to caricature, and and then caricature ultimately leads to hate and oppression. That's Tim Keller. Now, Christopher Hitchens' answer to this dilemma is to get rid of religion. But the problem with getting rid of religion is that it's not just formally religious people who do what I just described, is it? I mean, let's face it. We all have allegiance to something or someone, and we set up standards others can't meet so we can make ourselves feel better about our existence, right? Right? We just got to do this. It's kind of human nature. I mean, politically liberal activists look down their noses at conservatives. Conservatives caricature liberals. Mountain people do it to valley people. Valley people do it to mountain people. Public school people do it to private school people. P- private school people do it to public school. IB do it to non-IB. Yeah, right? Non-IB do it to IB. So Tim Keller says, and I, and I think Isaiah actually says in this text, the answer is not to get rid of religion. The answer, the way forward is to find a religion. The, the way forward for your heart is to find a religion that humbles you. False religion, can it can look like being snobby about your religious exercises and forgetting the poor. And it can be practices that accompany Full allegiance to sports teams. Seeking pleasure, seeking only pleasure and entertainment. Simply being a consumer and also neglecting the poor. On the other hand, Isaiah says there is something distinct about Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Yahweh says... In true religion, there is no room for thinking you are better than others. There is certainly no room for oppression in true religion. Instead, true religion will humble you and and it will lead to caring for the poor. Why? Because when you experience true religion drawn into a relationship and giving your full allegiance to the God of the Bible... You discover your own poverty and that you have done and can do nothing to deserve getting to be in his presence. God's people in Isaiah's day should have known this, but apparently they forgot. And you know what? God says to Israel and us through the prophet Isaiah Look, I have shown you the way that you fast, here's how you fast. But here is the way I fast, God says. This is the fast I choose. Verse 6, to loose the bonds of wickedness. In other words, to untie evil and let the oppressed go free. God broke Israel's oppressors. God broke Egypt. He poured himself out for the afflicted and set his people free. That's the way God fasts. Even though though they grumbled against him in the desert after being rescued across the Red Sea... God gave manna to Israel in the wilderness and and He fed the hungry. That's the way God fasts. God poured Himself out for His people and welcomed the homeless Hebrew slaves into His house and He clothed them and He gave them favor into a land flowing with milk and honey. That's the way God fasts. In the book of Deuteronomy, written when they were wandering in the wilderness, God says to His people, whom he rescued out of slavery, he says this, when you get into the land, remember me and remember the poor. Remember me and obey my commands and don't forget to care for the widows and the fatherless. Remember what I have done and don't forget the stranger he says to Israel, when you get in the land, don't forget the stranger. Why? Because you were once strangers in Egypt in a foreign land. And no one else, when you get into the land, no one else will care. No one else cares about the weak. Who else but you will care for them? And so the Israelites who were once slaves, they come into the promised land and what do they do? They forget. They forget. Apparently they forgot that the God of the Bible has a weakness for the oppressed. Our God has a heart that breaks for those who have nothing to offer. That's who our God loves. That's who our God cares for, the vulnerable, the weak. And when you get this, you start to see that God protecting the weak and helpless is just built into the fabric of Israel's history. They should not have forgotten. But I get it, because I forget. And it's not just a memory loss. My heart longs to consume things and people rather than pouring myself out for others, especially the poor. This is false religion, and God hates it. true religion he loves you see religion isn't the problem the problem is, is an abuse of religion the problem is with false religions and james writing after the death and resurrection of his brother jesus says there is such a thing as a religion that is pure and undefiled james says pure religion true religion is this here it is uh, yet again to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world true religion this week jimmy sent me this great quote from john chrysostom it's a fun name to say it's on the front of your bulletin i think is it on there yep uh chrysostom was a fourth century early church father and he wrote he wrote this no act of virtue can be great if it is not followed by advantage for others So no matter how much time you spend fasting, no matter how much you sleep on a hard floor and eat ashes and sigh continually, if you do no good to others, you do nothing great. So here we have it. Isaiah, Moses, James, Chrysostom, they all say, get true religion. A religion that humbles you and makes you lay down your life. And this is just, this is so hard, isn't it? I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I know anybody who would rather, out of completely pure motives, do something like go to a homeless shelter and serve meals instead of just lounging around all day or doing something fun or work even. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard to hang out with severely broken, maybe even smelly, needy people. And what's so striking about Yahweh is that he doesn't just say come on get it together and take care of the poor. He says that in Isaiah. But remember the book of Isaiah is all about judgment and promised hope and he doesn't leave God's people in judgment. And he said to his people he said to his people I know you're going to neglect the poor. And so I am actually going to come become poor for you. I'm going to show you your own poverty by becoming human. God says, I'm going to make myself a stranger by leaving the glory of heaven. And Jesus, the bread of heaven for the hungry, in Matthew 4, when he was led into the desert to be tempted by Satan, he actually fasts from food. He practices self-denial. And his physical fast pointed to something greater that was coming. He was confronted with the temptation to feast instead of fast. He was tempted to consume instead of to deny self. He was tempted by the enemy to take the kingdom without pouring himself out for the hungry and the oppressed. But instead of the feast and the easy road to the kingdom, he chooses to fast. And he gets the kingdom of God by way of emptying himself on a cross. Through Jesus, God says, I will make myself vulnerable and oppressed and afflicted. I will make myself afflicted by completely pouring myself out for poor people who don't know how to love. And so I will bring good news to the poor. Listen, the Lord Jesus made himself an orphan. Made himself an orphan to save people like you and me who practice false religion and neglect the poor that's the way God fasts so it's interesting um as we read Isaiah we might be tempted to think we should just never go to worship again don't go to church let's just go be the church that's that's not I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying God loves our worship when it's linked with caring for the unlovable, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Worship like crazy. Pray fast. Do religious exercises together that draw you into relationship with God. In our New Testament reading, Jesus said, when you fast, when you pray, when you help the needy. It was like this was, this was like expected. It was implied that this was going all on all the time. His words imply we should do things like worship regularly, but he also says care for the poor like crazy. So the warning of Isaiah and Jesus is jarring. Here it is for us, I think, a bit of a warning. Don't come in this place and raise up your hands and sing along with the band with all the fervor in the world only to go out into the world and not care for the poor. Instead, let's worship the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. And who is my neighbor? Everyone's my neighbor. That's what it is to be after the heart of God. That's true religion. So, how do we do this true religion? Well, here we go. <laughs> I think I'm going to keep going this time. How do we do this true religion? First, first, we have to see ourselves as poor. We need to recognize that we are all religious and we are all poor. Let me tell you a story about a guy who, um, who helped me, that God used to help me see my own poverty. Uh, you want to put him up there, Sam? I don't know if you can see him. That's Ted. For those of you, for the, if you can see it, I don't know, for those of you who are super, super savvy about uh, music outside the Christian music industry, uh, do you notice anything about Ted and the band he follows? Anyone? i will be super impressed. Yeah. Well, Ted is what is called, uh, he's, he's, he's called a juggalo. And a juggalo is a follower of the band, the Insane Clown Posse otherwise known as ICP. Uh, he may, yeah, Andrew, you're a fan. I knew it. I knew it. One day, one day, Ted came to the door of our church where I served as a pastor in Katy, Texas, and asked. he asked for help with food. He looked just like that when he came to the door, and honestly, I was rather freaked out by Ted. I hesitantly welcomed him in the church, I let Ted help me move some stuff at the church and do some work. And in our time together, he told me that he was manic depressive, paranoid schizophrenic, and had some intellectual and developmental disabilities. I took him to Kroger. We bought some food together, and I dropped him off next to the overpass that he lived under. As he walked away with grocery bags in his hand, I marveled. I marveled this, at this image of human brokenness. I did everything I could to see him as an image bearer of God. Honestly, I could see nothing of myself in him. Uh, Thought I was better than him. I couldn't see my own poverty. that Sunday, um, Ted showed up to worship and and he smelled like sewer and mildew mixed together. Ted could wash his clothes, but he didn't have a way to dry them. Also, Ted brought a friend to church, a guy named Jeff. I introduced myself trying not to vomit from the smell. Not kidding. Um, And I asked him where he lived, and he told me he lived next to Sears under the Kingsland Boulevard Bridge. I guess it would be similar to living under um, the Signal Mountain exit ramp off 27, but just more private and protected. So later that week, I'm I'm (laughs) I'm doing pastoral visitations, and where we would visit new people from the Sunday before, and um, I, get, I get stuck in traffic uh, right over the Kingsland Bridge, and uh, uh, right in front of Sears, and, uh, and all I can think about is Jeff and Ted and underneath the bridge, and I literally said out loud in the car, oh God, please don't tell me I have to go down there. And I wrestled with that in traffic, and I, and I turned into the alley behind Sears. I got out of my car, and probably foolishly walked down the hill by myself to go under the bridge, not knowing what to expect. And I stumbled upon uh, soggy mattresses, two or three other homeless folks, and uh, Jeff. Jeff welcomed me, and I sat under the bridge, had a gritty conversation over his cigarette about Jesus, and we talked about our lives and struggles, and. Jeff said to me at one point, no one has ever come down here for me. I'd love to tell you that I shared the gospel with Jeff, that he embraced Jesus. That didn't happen. What happened over the next few months was that God used Jeff to change me. To rip away this Messiah-Savior complex that I had no idea was there to rip away my idols of control security and self-preservation you see our church furnished an apartment for jeff and ted and that was probably mistake number 1 yeah you see in doing so i think we actually robbed them of their dignity as men because they decimated that place and wasn't wasn't their stuff We did what we thought was right, but we did more for them than they wanted to do for themselves because they gave me a sense of significance. Never, never out loud, but if we had helped them, I could say, at least in my mind, I saved Jeff and Ted. I am significant. I was looking to them for significance and to gain appreciation from others. And you know this, you don't have to be center stage in a rock band to crave people's applause. One pastor put it this way, if we rely on other people for appreciation, we end up using them rather than loving them. I relied on Jeff and Ted for appreciation. I was using them. We, we, we all do this. We all consume people and the things of our town and our city in which we live this is just kind of in the air we breathe. We live in a consumeristic society, and I, and I may be wrong about this, but I don't know anyone who comes to Signal Mountain in Chattanooga simply to serve this place. We all come here looking to consume something, uh, to get something from it. S- some of you have come here for a better job. Some come here for the beauty of mountains and rivers and all the outdoor activities, or, or simply for the mountain city vibe. Some of us come here for the prestige of living on the mountain. Some of us come here for schools. <laughs> Why did you come to Signal Mountain or Chattanooga? We all come here to take from the town and city to consume something. I I came here from Memphis for healing and restoration, and I'm not saying that any of this stuff is bad stuff. Much of it's beautiful. The warning here, though, is if you are just a consumer of the town and of city and of people, you will certainly reach your fill and you will be left empty. Because surrounding the religion of consumption, the false religion of consumption, are things like envy and jealousy and workaholism. And if you are just a consumer, you will find yourself empty. That is where I found myself in Katy, Texas, thinking I was fasting like God One night at 3 a.m., walking home four miles in 20-degree weather. You see, after even even spending months with him, what we didn't know about Jeff was that he was a raging alcoholic when he had money. And you see, we helped him get an apartment. We helped him get a job. And one of our deacons let him use one of his cars to get back and forth to work. And so he started to make money, and he started to drink Heavily. One night I was driving home from work, working late at my office. I turned and saw Jeff's borrowed van in the parking lot of a bar, the Deacon's van. I, uh, I drove into the lot, parked my car, and went inside, and I found Jeff with his girlfriend, and they were both completely wasted. And you see, Jeff, Jeff had become a close friend. We shared life together. I had brought him into our house for meals. Um... So what happened next completely took me off guard. And, and he stood wobbly and looked at me. And I could see the hate and anger and shame and humiliation in his eyes. And he asked, what are you doing here? You don't love me. I am the scum on the bottom of a shoe. You can't love me. The scum on the bottom of a shoe is what his father told him over and over and over when he was young. And I didn't realize it until later, though it was completely uncalled for, In that moment, Jeff exposed the fact that I was using him, that I was consuming him rather than loving him. He bowed up on me to fight me, and I was terrified. His girlfriend turned around and left the bar without paying her tab, took off to get into the deacon's car, whipped around the parking lot, barely missing me, rubbed the car on the bumper of a parked car, and slammed on the brakes. After somehow calming them down and and making sure that the other car was okay, I let them drive me home. I dropped them off. It was 3 a.m. and I had no one to call. After months and months of life with Jeff, he broke me that night. God broke me that night. And I was was walking home in the freezing weather and, and I saw God for the first time in months. Ted and Jeff helped me to see myself for who I was and they helped me to see God. And here is how. I knew that Jeff would remember nothing of that night that he would not remember how he got home, that he would not remember screaming at me in the bar. It was the first time in my relationship with Jeff that I understood laying down your life for someone who can give you absolutely nothing in return. And it was by accident. I was able to see God, but, but on purpose, because on purpose, that is what God does and has done for us. Jesus came to lay down his life for his people who could do nothing for him in return. He came to give his life as a ransom to set free self-absorbed consumers like you and me. Instead of being a consumer, Jesus was consumed by the people in the city. And and it is his death and resurrection that should give us new eyes and strength and courage to serve the poor. I'm not exaggerating when I say that these are are the kinds of things that I was meditating on when I was walking home at 3 a.m., and I, was, and I started to sing praises in the middle of the street to the, to the God who fasts. And that's the way God fasts. Do you see how true religion should humble us? God fasts for us. And that, that's what feeds our faith. We don't fast in order to prove we are holy so we can look down our noses at everyone. Also, don't serve the poor just to to feel good about yourself. That's just do-gooderism and damaging to you and the materially poor. At best, feeling good about yourself is just a byproduct. At worst, it's false religion. But true religion is embracing that God's grace through the good news of Jesus feeds us so that we can pour ourselves out for the hungry. Uh, Think of it this way. Our faith, true religion, is like this car. Okay? You want to come up and help me? I got to help her. Uh, well, let me let me explain first. The back wheels of this car let's see which one's the back. Yeah, there we go. The back wheels are grace. All right? The back wheels are grace and the back wheels make true religion move. And if you ever seen one of these cars, you got to wind it up to make it move. The front wheels are good works towards others. And we need both for true religion. So, you want to, you want to you want to give them a presentation okay that's that's true religion now I hope this works if you take away the back wheels see what happens you got some you got any movement there excellent so if you take the back it will take away the back wheels and all you have are good works you are going you're, you're going you're gonna to go nowhere. You're going to have false religion and you're probably going to get exhausted, burned out, get angry at the poor. If You take away the front wheels, uh-oh, this tape. You wound it like tons of tape. Tons. Here we go. Good work. Very efficient. Let's see if this works. All right. If you take away the front wheels, you you going anywhere? If you take away the front wheels, all you have is grace and you just get filled up and bloated on faith and it's a false religion and you can't help but look down your nose at somebody. What we need is both. When we help the helpless, we must have as our primary motivation the glory of God, spreading his heart. Secondly, we must have in mind restoring the dignity of our neighbors. Finally, a byproduct of all this is the removal of our false religion and the restoration of our own dignity. Then shall your light shine forth, says Isaiah. With the fast God chooses, a righteousness not of your own actually goes before you. The glory of God is rushing behind you. And and so even your own healing from self-righteousness is more speedy when you pour yourself out for the hungry. I'm, I'm very excited about Mountain Fellowship. Uh, I believe that we are people that at least have a glimpse of our own spiritual poverty. I, and we are also a people very interested in material poverty alleviation. Uh, I borrowed that phrase from Brian Fickert and Steve Corbett in their book, When Helping Hurts, Material Poverty Alleviation. When Helping Hurts is a book that helped me to show all my failings and transform my heart during my time working with homeless and Katie. Fickert and Corbett say this in the book. And you got a lot of you guys know Fickert and Corbett, right, Covenant College professors. Uh, the goal of poverty alleviation is not to make the material po- materially poor all over the world into middle- to upper-class North Americans, which is a group characterized by high rates of divorce, sexual addiction, substance abuse, and mental illness. Nor is the goal to make sure the materially poor have enough money. Rather, the goal is to restore people to a full expression of humus- humanness to being what God created us all to be, people who glorify God by living in relationship with God, with self, with others, and the rest of creation. I had the great privilege of being a part of a session meeting where the Home Repair Ministry was working through, or the Brethren of the Hammer, as we call them, uh, working through, they were talking about thinking through, praying for this kind of wisdom to serve the materially poor in this holistic ways, in ways that won't hurt them, in ways that won't hurt us, in ways that won't lead to burnout, in in ways that we can expose the healing we need from false religion. It was fantastic listening to Larry Perry, uh, Jackie Presler, and Jim West on all of that. Hearing of the many ways, hearing of the ways, many churches in our area have gotten like an injection of the fast the Lord chooses, and are starting to look at Mountain Fellowship as a model for serving the poor through home repair and restoring the streets and 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 repairing the breach in the city. I think you guys have all heard about the kids who have come to serve on Saturdays, and every time I hear these reports, all I can think about is Isaiah 58 and Isaiah's promise of redemption after judgment. He says this. Then... If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And we might add the brethren of the hammer." To that list. The home repair ministry is one way we can fast like God and so bring renewal. There are so many ways you can do this. And I think one of the reasons the brethren of the hammer are so energized by this work is because there is great need and they are good at what they do. They have matched their skills with the need and, and with the help of a woman named Amy Sherman, Brian Fickert, Steve Corbett, and others. Ever since my experience in Katie, I've been asking myself and others these questions. How are you particularly skilled and how can you match the skill with the needs of the materially poor in order to empower the materially poor? How can you use your job and your vocation to serve and empower the poor? If you have your own business, is there some portion of the business you can devote to collaborating with the poor? these are just some things to think on let me close uh, finishing my story about Ted and Jeff I think I need to do that Uh, Ted moved to a different city I have no idea where Jeff is now but the really cool part is that we got to meet Jeff's teenage kids who lived in the city his daughter started coming to Bible studies and as you can imagine she was severely damaged by her dad and it was so hard. We also got to meet her boyfriend, Dustin. He marveled. He marveled at the way we stumbled through loving Jeff and Ted. Dustin was also an orphan physically and spiritually. And through regular mentoring with one of our elders, he came to embrace Jesus. He was baptized in our church. And I got to come alongside him my last year in Katie as he learned to crawl in his faith. Dustin was rescued. And he glorified God all because... or. Oh, all as a result perhaps i was of me being foolish and reluctantly faithful with all the wrong motivations to go under a bridge to meet a man the way that jesus meets us do you want true religion how will you be consumed like jesus rather than be a consumer how will you pour yourself out for the poor as we think and pray Through these things, may we be a people who feed on the fast the Lord chooses so that we can pour ourselves out for other people who are also spiritually and physically hungry. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, as we come to your table, let us be a people of true religion. Let us remember you. Let us see our poverty. Let us remember how you fasted for us so that we can pour ourselves out for our neighbors. Let us also long for the day that Isaiah described, the day when you return and we feast with you. Poverty is eliminated and we ride on the heights of the earth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.